Amen. And in the spirit of that worship, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading today for our sermon text. Let's look together in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to look together today. I'm just going to read two verses, but we'll look at this, these two verses within the larger context as we get into the sermon. But let's read these two verses together, verses 28 and 29. And I invite you, please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. The letter to the Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for us, his people. And God's word says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, the mere reading of your holy and inspired word has power. For you spoke worlds into being by your voice, and nothingness became everything. And we know today that you can speak your word afresh and anew into each one of us in this place, and we can become something new we can be changed and transformed. So open our hearts, we pray, to hear your voice speaking in your word. Open our ears to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd calling us by name today, calling us to follow more nearly with the Good Shepherd. Write your truth upon our hearts and help us to grow in our faith and in our love for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name for his glory and for our good. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, last week we began a new series, a new series that I've titled Biblical Reformed Worship. And those two words, biblical and reformed, describe the two different parts of the series on worship. The first part of the series covers the biblical foundations of worship. And the second part covers the reformed structure of worship that is built on that biblical foundation. The purpose of this series is to learn together what kind of worship pleases the Lord. What kind of worship God wants from us when we gather in His presence on His day for public worship. And the goal of this series is that it will enliven and enrich our corporate worship as a body and also hopefully as individuals, making it more aligned with Scripture, more pleasing to God, and more satisfying to us as we bring our will into conformity with God's will about His worship. Now, last week, we began laying the biblical foundations of worship 
In John 4, 19-26, Jesus discusses proper worship with a Samaritan woman. And in these few verses, Jesus signals, as we saw, no fewer than five fundamental changes to Old Covenant worship that He Himself makes under the New Covenant that He brings. And these five changes serve as the five foundational principles for all Christian worship. Let me summarize them for you quickly. Christian worship under Christ's new covenant is now centered on new realities. The realities of the person and work of Christ. Second, Christian worship is not tied to local shrines and temples. But rather it is now open to new locations in all the earth, that the glory of the Lord might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Three, Christian worship has a focus that shifts to new dimensions. Under the old covenant, the focus was on the outward ostentation and ritualistic ceremonies, the formalism of the specific things people were supposed to do in the tabernacle or temple under old covenant worship. But now, the focus under Christian worship in the New Covenant, it shifts to new dimensions. Now, inward dimensions of spirit and truth become primary. Four, Christian worship is now based on new standards. Now, from Genesis all the way up to the coming of Christ, worship has always been by the standard of God's Word. It's all, that principle does not change. But what is different is that now we have a fullness of revelation. We have a New Testament based on a new covenant that comes with Christ and His apostles. And now we are Christians worshiping under a new covenant. And so the New Testament becomes the foundational basis. Not leaving the Old Testament behind, but in continuity with the Old Testament, flowering into new dimensions in the New Testament. True worship is now according to New Testament revelation. And fifth... All four of these previous principles must now come together to form new ceremonies, new kinds of worship services, and new orders of service or orders of worship that put these principles into practice. Now, worship in spirit and in truth does not leave the body behind. It just changes what we do with our bodies and with one another on Lord's Day worship. Now, I take the time to repeat those five points because they're so important. Uh, these are the foundation. These five principles are the foundation of biblical reformed worship. Everything else we talk about in this series is founded on those five things. In our passage this morning in Hebrews, we are going to add the next layer to our biblical foundation. Today, we're going to zoom in on one of those five principles and amplify it with the rest of Scripture. Namely, number four, new standards. New standards. Jesus says in John 4, 23 to 24, that the Father is seeking a particular kind of worship from, a, from what Jesus calls a true worshiper. And he says that we must worship in this way. The word is must, it is necessary, it is required, it is non-negotiable that we bring God the worship He is seeking. The kind of worship from a true worshiper that God wants. 
In other words, God gets to tell us what kind of worship he wants. Which means there is such a thing as worship that God accepts and worship that God rejects. And our passage in Hebrews warns us of this very thing and exhorts us to offer God acceptable worship. And so, as we look to the scriptures here, in Hebrews and elsewhere, we're going to see three points today. First, a warning about worship. Second, worship that God rejects. And then four, worship that God accepts. So let's take each of these one at a time. We'll begin with the first worship, a a warning about worship. How many of you remember a few years ago the story of the woman who spilled hot coffee on herself in a drive-thru and then sued the restaurant because it didn't have a warning label that the coffee was hot? Anybody remember seeing that? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that stupid? (laughs) I mean, that's just silliness, right? I mean, hello, you ordered a hot coffee. It's probably going to be hot. If they're doing a good job, it's going to be hot. But for those of you who don't know, she's at a drive-thru, probably a fast food place. I can't remember. Let's just say McDonald's. Sorry, McDonald's, if it's not you. But was it McDonald's? Barry knows. Barry knows it was McDonald's. And... Right, she orders the coffee, they stick it through the window, I don't know, she squeezes it, lid pops off, ah, and it scalds her, because it's scalding hot coffee. And she's like, you didn't warn me that this, there's no warning label on this cup, and they're like, you're an idiot, thanks, have a nice day. And so she sues them, and she wins. She won that lawsuit. Something's broken in America. drive through lawsuit. Right? Hot coffee. That's silly, right? Why would a cup of hot coffee need a warning label? And, and so now, there are silly warning labels on all kinds of things. I once saw a TV remote that had the warning label, Not Dishwasher Safe. <laughs> I've seen an iron that said, Do not iron clothes on body. You know how the, uh, the side mirrors on your car, I don't know if all of them say this, but most of them on the mirrors, it'll say, you know, caution, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Have you seen that? Have you noticed that? I once saw a motorcycle mirror that said, caution, objects are behind you. <laughs> if you need that warning label, you shouldn't be allowed to touch a motorcycle. <laughs> okay? I mean... And here's the, here's the really terrifying part about this. They would not put those labels on these items by just thinking up, imagining what could happen. They have to put that on there because some, some poor, bless their heart person has done these things. That's why, and these people are out there driving motorcycles tonight. Someone had a dirty remote and thought, let's put this in the dishwasher. And then called customer service and complained. And they're like, well, we better put that on the remote then, that you shouldn't do that. There are all sorts of silly warning labels. And here, here was my idea. Here's my idea of a warning label. I used to work at Hobby Lobby. And when we would get in our sort of on Christmas and Easter, we would get in these figurines. 
and they were constantly breaking. In the boxes, people were dropping them because they're made out of like fragile material, like ceramic and stuff like that, right? Well, at Easter, when we got our Jesus figurines in, I had the idea of a warning label. I thought I would put, caution, he is resin. (laughs) They didn't go for it. There are lots of silly warning labels out there. And I imagine that someone, maybe someone here, may be thinking, you know, it's really silly to suggest that corporate worship comes with a warning label. I mean, what's, what, what could the warning be, right? What's the big deal? What's, what's really going to happen if we don't worship God just the way he wants, like... Like, what's, what's the big deal here? This is silly. Why, why would you suggest worship? Worship comes with a warning label. Well, our passage in Hebrews tells us worship comes with a warning label. It gives us a warning about worship. And it actually isn't silly at all. It actually is quite serious. And here's what the warning label is. The warning about worship in Hebrews 12. It's in verse 29. Well... Second half of verse 28 into verse 29. It says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for or because our God is a consuming fire. Worship comes with a fire hazard warning label. Offer God acceptable worship. Warning, he's a consuming fire. Now, this fits into a larger context in Hebrews 12 about worship. Back up with me, and let's just read through, starting in verse 18, what he's talking about. What's going on in the context. Verse 18, verses 18 to 21 is the first half I want us to look at. It says, For you, talking to us Christians, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What's he talking about? He's talking about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. When God comes down upon the mountain, the mountain began to smoke and quake, and there was fire and storm and darkness, and it was terrifying. The earth itself was shaking. Verse 20, For they could not endure, the Jewish people at the foot of that mountain when God came down, they could not endure the order that was given. And this is what Exodus says, If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. No one could touch the mountain. Not even the animals could get up and touch the foot of the mountain because it was too pure. It was too holy. God was there. Verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And poor Moses then was told, Come up here into the cloud with me. And he had to tremblingly climb that mountain up into the holy darkness that shrouded the blinding light of Jehovah God. So that's, what's he describing? He's saying, verse 18, you have not come to that mountain. He's describing earthly Mount Sinai worship. You haven't come to that mountain, he says. He says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
Remember Mount Zion's in Jerusalem. And to the city of the living God. That's Jerusalem. But then he says, the heavenly Jerusalem. Because remember, Jesus said, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So we're coming to the city of the living God, the capital of the kingdom. But it's a heavenly Jerusalem. The one that descends from God at the end of the book of Revelation. You have come to a heavenly city. And you can approach that city from any direction on earth. You don't have to be tied to a local place, just like Jesus said. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Angels wearing their best for worship. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is heaven and earth joined together to worship. We are not simply here with one another. But when we come together in the Lord's presence, the body of Christ is still connected. And that includes all the saints who have gone before us. They're still part of our body. We are plugged into them. They are plugged into us. We are in the company of angels. And to all those who are enrolled in heaven. You see there is a worldwide church. And a church across the ages. Not just across the borders. We are one body in one church. And he says you've come to this heavenly glorious reality. You have come to this heavenly mountain place, this place where you can worship God, a place you can approach from anywhere on earth, not just in earthly Jerusalem. It's heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 24, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Not old covenant Sinai worship, but new covenant, heavenly Jerusalem that is above worship. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember in Genesis 4 when Cain rises up and he slaughters his brother Abel. The first murder recorded in scripture. God says to Cain, what have you done? The blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. And what is the slain blood unjustly taken in cold blood? What is it saying? What is it crying out to God? Guilty, condemned, and Cain is cast out and put under a further curse. Here it says, you've come to Jesus and his blood that was spilled speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because his blood cries out, not you're condemned, but you, sinner, can go free. You are justified Forgiven, innocent, cleansed, made pure. This is the glorious new covenant reality that we worship under. This is what he's describing. So we've come to new covenant Christian worship. We've left old covenant worship behind. But this only intensifies the, late, the warning on the label. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Moses, Mount Sinai, much less, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Rejecting Moses was bad enough. Rejecting Christ is far, far worse. 
See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If it didn't go well for them, how much less will it go well for us? They rejected earthly stuff. We're rejecting the heavenly fulfillment. Beware, warning, our God is a consuming fire. And in that, past, in that verse there, verse 29, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 and 24, this is what the Lord says through Moses. Take care, he says to the, to the people of Israel. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image. Right? This is about worship. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Because the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. A jealous God. God is passionate with zeal about His worship. He's passionate and jealous for His worship. Warning. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, at this juncture, we need to ask, okay, what kind of worship does God reject so that we can avoid that warning? We've seen what the warning is. That's point one. Now, let's go into point two. The kind of worship God rejects. And yet, even after seeing a warning like that, I imagine that for many people, this question still just doesn't compute. What do you mean God might reject our worship? Why would he do that? If we're here and we're worshiping and we're giving it to God and we're like here for him, he would never, he would never reject our worship. How could he? For some people, it's a question you haven't even encountered, never even thought about it. Oh, God might not like what I'm doing this morning. In public worship. Never dawned on me. Let me give you an example of this. This was illustrated for me very powerfully with a, a friend of mine. There were uh, three or four of us uh, years and years ago who went to a Rascal Flats concert in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I mean, and they were just killing it, right? They were killing They had the lights. They had the guitars. They had the energy. They had the excitement. We were really rocking out some good old country music. And in the midst of it, I leaned over to, to, to two of my buddies here and I said, you know what? You know what strikes me is that what we're watching here is almost indistinguishable from what some churches do on Sunday morning. And the guy next to me is like, yeah, man, you're right. Sure enough, can't tell the difference between a rock show or, and, uh, and church. Yeah, you're right. The other guy's like, So? So what? What's the big deal? People can worship whoever they want. Well, this was not the time for a theological debate, but I turned it into one. Because <laughs> I was in seminary. What else am I going to do? Reading all these books, I got to spit it out at somebody. And he said, uh, he said, so what? What's the big deal about this? And I said, well, I mean, why do you think God likes being worshipped like this? And he was just like, what? I said, yeah, seriously, why do you think God, do you, why, why do we assume that this is okay? Like, whoever told us this was okay? And so he said, 
well, wait a minute. So what are you saying? These people have been, the people who are the musicians, like in the worship band, will say, they've been given these talents by God. He's given them the ability to play this music and sing these songs. And they're like, look, God bless me with this. I love the Lord. I want to use my talents and gifts and I want to serve him. And this is what we're going to do. And, and like, if they're just serving God with the gifts they have and they're sincere and they love the Lord and they're there with the right motives. And what do you talk? Why would he ever reject that? I mean, they're being so sincere. How can you call that into question? I'm like, well, I'm not calling their sincerity into question. I said, what if God sincerely doesn't want to be worshipped like that? And he was like, I ought to. And then the guy between us was like, okay, all right, let's just enjoy the music, guys. Let's calm down. Let's go get a pretzel. Let's have some hot dogs. Let's just chill, all right? In fact, you go stand over there. Good idea. And then we dropped it, and, and it was fine. No, 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 no hard feelings, and the rest of the night went just fine. We moved on. It was cool. But that kind of conversation, he was not prepared to hear the things I was saying because he'd never even thought it. it did not compute. It did not compute at all. What I want to do is to build some categories for us so that these questions compute, so that we start thinking, what does God want in worship? If, if he's got this warning label on worship, caution, our God's a consuming fire, so better worship him acceptably, we better figure out what does unacceptable worship look like? What kind of worship does God reject? So what I want to do is just give you some examples in Scripture of worship that God rejects and the reason that's given for why he rejects that worship. Now, I've got, I've got four examples and lots of verses. I can't go through them all. I can't read all the verses. I'll read a couple of them. But let me just summarize what each of these are for the sake of time. The first example is the one we've already mentioned, Cain and Abel. Why was Cain so mad at Abel? Why did Cain rise up and kill Abel? Well, it's because they both came to worship. They they both brought a sacrifice. Cain brought a sacrifice from his garden. He brought vegetables and fruit and plants and stuff and offered that. And then Abel brought an animal from his flock and offered a burnt offering. And the text says, God accepted Abel's worship, but he didn't accept Cain's. And Cain was furious. He storms off, he's sulking, he's mad. And the Lord comes to him in Genesis 4, right there in the story, the Lord comes and says, Cain, why is your face fallen like this? Why are you so distraught? And he's ticked off and they have a back and forth. And he says, look, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But if you do wrong, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. You have to master it before it masters you. And the book of Hebrews, where we are, chapter 11, verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain did. Hebrews 11, 4 By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith. Worship that lacks faith is rejected. If we bring God worship, but we leave our faith at home, what we do here will not be accepted. If we come without faith, if our hearts and our trust is not engaged in what we're doing, it will be rejected. 
We have to bring faith with us. If we're here and we just simply are going through the motions and ho-hum, yep, we'll just, all right, now we're going to sing, now we sit, now we stand, yada, yada, yada. Can't wait for lunch. Let's go. There's no faith in that person. Not saying that you're an unbeliever, but in that moment, that kind of worship we're giving at that time is just empty because there's no heart in it. There's no faith. Cain brought some vegetables and was like, here you go, have a, have a radish, Lord. Here's some cabbage. Here's my cabbage. And then, you know, how long did it take him to pick up a head of cabbage and throw that on the altar? Here, Abel had to go get the best animal he had, ritually sacrifice it, do all the stuff, bring it to the altar. I mean, there's something missing in Cain's worship, whereas Abel's is full of faith. Worship that lacks faith is rejected. Second example, worship that lacks integrity and uprightness is rejected. In other words, worship that is given with hypocrisy gets rejected. Proverbs 15.8 and Proverbs 21.3 tell us that the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. That the very prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. What's happening here? Normally when we think about the wicked, we don't think churchgoer. But here's a person in church, in Old Testament church, who's offering a prayer. And he's, he's doing the prayers and he's giving a sacrifice and he's doing the worship. But when he goes home, he has nothing to do with the Lord and the Lord has nothing to do with him. So if we bring worship that lacks a walk with the Lord, if we bring worship to us that only exists on Sunday morning, if from Sunday afternoon to Saturday night the next week, we just live like there's no God, but on that, on sacred Sunday morning, oh, our hands are up and we're praising and oh yes, Lord, bless us that we praise you, Jesus. And then you go home and it's over. If there's no walk with the Lord, no Christian life that you bring with you, if you're not walking with the Lord Monday through Saturday, so that walk goes straight through the doors of the sanctuary, you don't even break stride, you just walk with the Lord right into worship, and then keep walking back out. If we bring this emptiness, no faith and no integrity in our worship, It's not accepted. We see this in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 to 14. Where Isaiah says, I cannot stand it when you mix iniquity with your sacred assemblies. I just can't stand it. He says, when you come and you do everything I say to do in the old covenant. You offer exactly the right sacrifices in exactly the right way. And pray the right prayers at exactly the right time. When you just check off every box but you've just spent the week in rebellion against me, and then you come think that if I just go through the motions, it's okay? He says, I hate those sacrifices. It is a stench in my nostrils. Isaiah 10, Isaiah 1, 10 to 14, he talks like this about the worship of the people in that day. Worship that lacks some integrity, some uprightness. Worship that isn't attended with a walk with the Lord. Worship that's hypocritical is rejected. Third, worship that lacks reverence and awe 
is rejected. This is what our text says. Let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So if we don't have any reverence, if we come in here with no awe, with no godly fear, that worship too is rejected. You see, in Leviticus 19.5, the worshiper is told, don't just bring your sacrifice, your offering, any old way you like. Bring it in such a way that it's going to be accepted. Bring it in such a way that it will be accepted. Leviticus 22, 19 and 20. He says, if you bring this kind of animal that has this kind of blemish or imperfection, it won't be accepted. There are specific regulations. And the person who brings those sacrifices and doesn't care the state of the sacrifice, the the purity, the wholeness of the sacrifice, that person's worship is rejected. We see this in Malachi 1, 6 through 10. In Malachi 1, 6 through 10, God tells the priests in the second temple, not Solomon's, but the second temple, he says, I wish that somebody would just shut the doors. I'm just sick. I'm sick of the worship you're giving me. Well, why God? And there's this, be- this beautiful back and forth in Malachi where God says, you do this. And the priests say, what do you mean, God? I- what are you talking about? And then he explains. There's this beautiful back and forth. And it's like a dialogue in Malachi. And he says, you think you, you despise my altar, you priest. You despise my altar. What do you mean you des- we despise your altar? No, we don't. He says, yes, you do. You offer lame, weak, blind, deformed, defective, impure sacrifices. And you don't even, you act like that is sufficient. You act like that's good enough. You act like that's fine. You're sloppy sacrifices. You act like I'm going to be fine with that. There's no reverence for my altar. There's no awe or godly fear. You don't believe I'm a consuming fire. And he says, go offer that to your governor and see if he accepts that. Hmm? Put it in our terms. Go offer your employer what you offer to God and see if he's okay with you. See if he's pleased. He won't be. Offer to God worship that has reverence and awe. That takes it seriously. That knows that when we're here, it's a sacred time and a sacred thing we're doing. Last example. And this one I will read because it is so classic and so memorable. It's the example... In Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, the two of Aaron the priests, Aaron the high priest, brother of Moses, two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, his, his pan, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered un authorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. I like the King James. Strange fire. Strange fire. Unauthorized fire. They offered this. They did an offering in the tabernacle before the Lord. They offered unauthorized Fire which he had not commanded them. And what happened? Verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is their dad, right? Moses' brother, these are his nephews. Moses says to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. 
and Aaron, their father, held his peace. Because there's nothing he could say. Why did he hold his peace? Because it was clear that when they approached the altar, they had no reverence and awe. They did not sanctify or glorify him. And they did something. They they worshipped him in a way that expressly violated what he said to do. And Aaron had no argument. Because he understood as well, our God is a consuming fire. Fire went out from before the Lord. In other words, they offered this strange incense in a way they weren't supposed to. They put it on the fire on the altar and it exploded and engulfed them and killed them. Fire went out from the Lord's altar. Don't think of some like magic thing happening. He, he said, don't put that kind of incense on the altar for a reason. It's explosive. And here we're, we're told our God is a consuming fire. He is explosive. He is jealous for his worship. And when we offer it in a way he has not authorized, it gets rejected. And lest we imagine that, you know, Wesley, all those, uh, all those examples you gave were Old Testament. So what's all this new covenant worship about? That's all Old Testament. That's over, right? Well, each of those have a New Testament parallel. And I'll just rattle these off for you quickly. Romans 14, 23. Worship that lacks faith is rejected. Romans 14, 23. Paul says, whatever doesn't come from faith, it's sin. So if we come in here and we worship, but we have no faith, we're sinning. Can you imagine that when you come in here, the way you worship could be a sin? Yeah, it can be. Worship that has no faith is a sin. It's rejected. Worship that lacks integrity and uprightness or worship that's mingled with hypocrisy is rejected. That's Acts 5, 1 to 11. That's Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? They're having, a, they're having a, a love offering, right? And they're saying, like, we're taking up an offering. And so Ananias and Sapphira go and sell, their, sell some stuff, some property. But they keep back a little money for themselves, which was fine. They were, they were perfectly allowed to do that, Peter said, in the passage. Problem is, when they got to church and they gave their offering, they said, that's the whole amount. Look at us. Now, Sapphira, his wife, wasn't there. Ananias was at the Sunday morning service by himself. Where was she? I don't know. He, he is the one that offered this and said, yeah, that's the whole amount. And Peter said, you're a liar. And you haven't just lied to me, you've lied to God. And by the way, here come the feet of those who are going to bury you now. And he dropped dead in the morning service. Three hours later, Sapphira shows up, maybe to give her portion. So she gets there at the evening service. And then Peter says, oh, you're just in time. The people who just got through burying your husband, they're here to bury you now. And then she dropped dead. Two deaths on a Sunday. In church. I mean, you would be shocked. We would be in big trouble. I'd be investigated. something, (laughs) Something bad is happening at the Forks. People are dropping like flies. Morning service, somebody drops. Evening service, which we don't have, so maybe we avoid that one. But but people are dying. It just means two are going to die in the morning service. So people are dropping dead in the New Testament because they lied about how much they were giving in their offering. Your offering is part of worship. Dropping stuff in those boxes or giving on that's worship. Giving alms in the context of worship, that is worship. Worship's not just the singing and the preaching and then we do other stuff in between worship. It's all worship. And they lied about their offering. And so they dropped dead. That's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. Worship that lacks reverence is rejected. 
This is in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 30, where Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, he says, he says that when you come together, you better discern the body. Do not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. For the one who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner is guilty of desecrating the body and blood of Christ. And you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And that's New Testament. And then he says, that's why some of you Corinthians are sick. And that's why some of your own people have died. Because you abuse the Lord's Supper. You come to the Holy Sacrament and you desecrate it. You, you get, some of you are getting drunk. The rest of you are going hungry. The rich are having a party. The poor are starving in the corner. And that's how you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, Paul says? But because of this irreverence and desecration, some of you have gotten sick and a few of you are dead. Warning. Warning. Our God is a consuming fire. Worship is serious business. And the last one, worship that lacks obedience to God's commands is rejected. Well, isn't that right here in our passage? Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for our God is a consuming fire. I gave Old Testament examples, but they all have New Testament parallels. They apply to us no less than they did to the people of old. And that takes us to our third and final point. We've seen the warning about worship. We've seen worship God rejects. Let's finish by seeing worship that God accepts. Acceptable worship, as we've now seen, starts in the heart and it moves outward from there to the whole service. You bring your faith and uprightness with you to church. Right worship starts with what you guys bring with you. Bring your faith and bring us a walk with the Lord this past week. Bring that with you to church. And there we'll have a good start. Not bring your perfection. Not bring your sinlessness. Okay, we're not legalists. Right? Faith includes faith in God's mercy when we sin and for our weaknesses. So we bring our repentance with us too. That's part of our Christian walk. As we, we say, Lord, Father, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. And we say that daily. In fact, 1 John says, if we pretend not to have any sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. 1 John 1. So we bring with us a humble, repentant, faithful walk with Christ into the worship with us. We come in with faith. We come in with integrity, not hypocrisy. And then once you're here, you engage with God in spirit and in truth. As Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, 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 in this way, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We bring our gratitude that we have been made a part of the kingdom of the Lord. We bring our gratitude, we bring our reverence, we bring our awe. And then together, we all participate in the ceremonies of the worship service. And we trust that those ceremonies are crafted according to God's commands. And that's where we say, our will has to die and God's will has to be everything. We must decrease and he must increase. 
We come in here and we say, I don't have an agenda. I'm not here to get my way. I'm not here to demand this kind of music or those kind of songs. Or we, we, we don't sit as much or we don't stand as much or, or we do this different and that different. That's a discussion. That advice is fine. Preference is one thing. But we don't come putting our foot down and say, what I want in worships, what I want. And if it's not my way, worship stinks. Church is useless. It was no good today. We don't come with that attitude. We come saying, God, whatever you want us to do today, that's all I want to do. That's all I want to do. And this is where the new standards comes in. This principle that God gets to tell us and command us to worship how he wants has a name in Reformed theology. We call it the regulative principle. The regulative principle. Here is how the Westminster Confession of Faith, our governing document for our, for our beliefs, this is how the Westminster Confession describes this regulative principle. In Westminster Confession, chapter 21, verse 1, it says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way that's not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. That's what regulative principle worship is. God has instituted his own worship. He has limited what we can do by his revealed will We don't get to make it up as we go, the imaginations and devices of men. We don't worship God through images. That's why there's no pictures in here of the Lord. And we do not do anything that has not been prescribed for us in Holy Scripture. He's written us a prescription for worship. And we're to follow that prescription. Now, the Confession cites seven different passages of Scripture to support this statement. And I'll just summarize what's said in three of them. One of those is Exodus 20, 4 through 6. That's the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to it or worship it. Because God is jealous for his worship. That's what the second commandment says. It establishes limits on worship. And for follow-up on what this means, you can check out Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 50 and 51. The other passage is Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32, and I will read this one. Deuteronomy chapter 12, 29 to 32. I'll just read verse 32 for time. In the context, he's talking about when you come into the land of Canaan, do not ask, oh, how do these guys worship their gods? Let's do that. Don't inquire how anybody else worships their gods. You are to worship me the way I say. Ignore everything else. He says in verse Deuteronomy 12, 32, everything that I command you, this is in the context of how to worship, he says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Don't add to my worship. Don't take away from my worship. Just stick to the script. The last passage that's referenced is Colossians chapter 20. Chapter 20. Chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. 
And here in verse 23, he says, he describes these other things that people do in worship. He calls them in verse 22, human precepts and teachings, traditions of men. Then he says in verse 23, Colossians 2, 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting, here's the key word, self-made religion. Self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Self-made religion. So it's a really tricky word in Greek. It's a fun word in Greek. Self-made religion is one word in Greek. And the first part means will or wish or want. And the second part means religious devotion, worship. So the King James here is fun. It says will worship. Half hyphenated, will worship. Autonomous worship. The kind of religious devotion I want. Self-made religion. What this is telling us is, if we try to bring to God worship the way we want to do it, and we make it up as we go, and we don't base it on what God said, we've made up our own religion. It's self-made worship. It's will worship. It's me worship. And this is what is condemned. The imaginations and devices of men in worship are prohibited. So let's conclude this way. What we do in worship, from our hearts and lives that we bring with us to church, to the ritual acts and ceremonies of public worship, absolutely everything we do must be done according to strict biblical requirements in the Holy Scriptures. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. This is what's called the regulative principle. This principle tells us that the only way to please God in worship is to worship Him exactly as He tells us to. Worship Him exactly as He tells us to. And when we do that, we can have tremendous comfort and assurance. Tremendous comfort and assurance. For if we try to worship God without a clear word, then we're just in the dark. We can't know that we're pleasing God with our worship without a word from God to base it on. We're just having to guess and hope. But we don't have to guess and hope. God's given us a word, and we can rest assured that our worship is acceptable when we go by His word. And this ought to give us tremendous satisfaction in our worship. The redeemed soul loves to please God. And if we know our worship is according to God's commands, then we know our worship is pleasing to Him which brings great joy and delight to God's people as we worship together. So let each one of us today, let each of you commit today that every Sunday going forward, we are going to worship God exactly as He seeks and commands to be worshipped. We're going to bring our will into alignment with His. In obedience to His word, let us worship Him with reverence and awe before His majesty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about worship, but you've given us a clear word. And as we continue to go through this series and look more and more at your word, I pray that you would help us all to have hearts that are ready and excited to just worship you the way you want. Help us to have the faith and the integrity of our hearts and lives as we come in the building, as we come into your worship and help us to have reverence for your courts and let us be in awe before your majesty and recognize your great authority 
And give us that comfort and joy that comes from knowing that our worship is, is right in the middle of your will. That we're doing exactly what pleases you. Help us to respect the fact that you are a consuming fire. And that you take your worship seriously. So forgive us where we fail. Strengthen us where we're weak. Lead us to walk with full faith and excitement in all the ways you've called us to work, to walk. And help us to worship you with all, with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.